0: So we're going to go through today, uh, continue on in Mark in our series where we've been talking about uh, knowing Jesus, knowing the Son of God, Uh, and and to kind of just quickly recap of of what we've learned, and there's a lot that we've seen, but throughout Mark, Jesus has primarily been throughout uh, Galilee, and really kind of throughout the Sea of Galilee, but um, we've seen that it's important of knowing who Jesus is. Um, that he's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a king. We've also seen that uh, and learned that it's actually important to know Jesus as Christ, right? Robert talked about that one week as well. And we see that the power of Jesus in many miracles that he's performed, and, and up until now, we're in chapter 6, up until now we've seen at least 10 miracles, a couple times where just, he's performed so many miracles that people just came. And, and if we look at those, he's cast out demons in Capernaum, He's rejected the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. He's cleansed a leper. He spoke and made a paralyzed man walk. He restored a withered hand. Mark 3 says he healed so many that that all who had diseases came up just to touch him. He calmed the storms and the seas. He subdued and cast out the demons of the possessed uh, Gerasian man. And last week, we, uh, Robert uh, read over how Jesus was drying up the blood of a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years and raising from the dead the daughter of Jairus. That's a, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of things to see and to know about and to hear about as, as we read where Jesus is heading next. So keep those things in mind as we go through our scripture today. And as we go through Mark 6, Mark um, 6, you know, this really kind of seems like a short, a short uh, section. And it seems pretty straightforward at first. Um, and it clearly sets the stage for verses 7 through 13. But what I want to do is really look a little bit deeper at what we're reading here and what we're actually saying. And um, as I was kind of going through, I was actually planning on preaching through 1 through 13, all the way through. And I figured you guys might like to have lunch at some point. So I backed it down a little bit. And, and this text, like I said, just kind of feels a little transformative. And as we all know, Seth, there's more that meets the eye when things transform. So let's read verses 6, 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is he not the carpenter's son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and among his household And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Do we see Jesus for who he is? Do we see Jesus instead for who we want? Do we see Jesus for who he is or do we see Jesus for who we want? And I want us to really think about that. Do we select only the parts about Jesus that are pleasing to our taste? The things that 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 aren't pleasing, do we spit those out? And do we pass over attributes of Jesus that are hard to swallow? Or maybe a better question, back to one of Robert's sermons earlier in Mark, do we actually know Jesus? Do we know him well enough to say that we fully know him? That we tr- know, truly know him? Or do we just know him well enough to be comfortable with him? We see in, in Mark 6 verse 1, and we'll pray here in just a minute, that he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. There being the Sea of Galilee comes to his hometown in Nazareth, and this is not his first visit to Nazareth, okay? So pray with me real quick, and then we'll get into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for for being truth, for being wisdom, for being the great I am. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not turning away. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for making yourself known. Father, I pray that as we go through this morning, that we see you maybe in a different light. That Jesus, you speak to us in ways that that are eye-opening and that you make us search our hearts. Father, I thank you most of all for for the grace that you've given us that through faith we can receive Christ and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So he comes back to, to Nazareth and, and this is, like I said, he's coming from, from the Sea of Galilee and, and Nazareth really is a town of, of little significance, right? We're talking maybe a couple hundred people. Maybe. All right. uh, not much is mentioned about Nazareth in the, in the Bible, Old Testament, or New except, except really we read a little bit um, in uh, where in John chapter one, where Philip finds Nathaniel and, and basically tells him, you know, they found the one who Mo- Moses and the prophets have spoken of. It's Jesus of, of Nazareth. <laughs> where uh, uh, son of Joseph and, and, and Nathaniel responds with Nazareth. Can anything good come of Nazareth? It's mean, kind of how I felt coming back from Las Vegas. Can anything good come from Las Vegas? Like I said, this is not Jesus' first time back to Nazareth. So this is actually the second recorded time, and as far as we know, his last time to his hometown. And I want to kind of run through a little bit because this this instance doesn't fully make sense unless you know what happened the first time he came into town. In his previous trip, and you can find this in the other Gospels, uh, Luke 4 has a a good account of it. Um, But it tells that Jesus goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath day. All right? He reads from uh, the scriptures. Uh, it's actually from Isaiah uh, about the spirit of the Lord, and, uh, and uh, um, he, <laughs> as he as he gets done reading, right, uh, and this 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 passage is about uh, is about the spirit of the Lord, about anointing, about freedom to captives, about giving sight to the blind, of liberty to the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord. And after he gets done reading, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people are saying, is this, this is Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? And, and, and Jesus, knowing their unbelief says to them, you will no doubt say to me, we know the works that you've done at Capernaum. Do those things here. And knowing their hearts, he says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown." He follows that statement with examples of Elijah and Elisha where they weren't accepted by Israel. They weren't accepted in their hometown. And in fact, the only one who was fed during the famine was an out-of-town person. The only one who was cleansed of leprosy was an out-of-town person that they went out to and saw because the faith was not there in their hometown of what they could do, of what could be done. When the people heard this, they were so enraged that they come after Jesus, they try to kill him. They actually try to chase him to throw him off a cliff, but, spoiler alert, he manages to slip through them and get away. That is how the first time went about. And still he's coming again for a second visit. Though I don't think it's going to be much different. Now, these questions today, in the sermon notes, you're going to see uh, uh, five questions. In truth, there's probably about 50 questions I'm going to speak today, but five really that I mainly want you to, to worry about, and, and I'll kind of call those out as we go through and, and for the fill in the blanks. Um, but I really want, I'd, I'd love for, you, for everybody to kind of take this home and just go through these this week as you are praying, as you're studying, and just really analyze your heart uh, and see if these ring true. Now, this time, coming back to Nazareth, Jesus is bringing his uh, um, disciples with him, not for protection. He's bringing his disciples with him for a learning opportunity, and for his apostles for sure, this is going to be an example of the task that they have coming up, because they're going to experience the same thing that Jesus has. Verses 2 through 4 says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did he get these things? Where is this wisdom given to him? How much mighty work, or how are mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives." And in his own house. Just like the time before, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues on Sabbath. And just like before, the people are astonished. And astonished here is like they're struck. They're overwhelmed. Right? is not like a, an astonishment of, I'm in awe of someone. This is, uh, this is uh, more demeaning, really. Right? They start talking among themselves and raise questions. Where does this man get these things? Where does this wisdom come from? What mighty works are done by his hand? And pay special attention to these in verse two. Because again, these are not in amazement. These are insulting. These are insinuating motives. Insinuating that his power comes from evil. But pay close attention. They are not able to deny that Jesus is doing these miracles. They're not able to deny that his wisdom reaches beyond anyone they've ever seen before. They're not able to deny these great things that he's done. They cannot deny him. Even though they can't deny him, though, they can't explain them either. And because they can't explain them, they won't accept them, and what's worse is, they don't even care to try. They don't even care to find out. I mean, you've got people who have first-hand accounts talking to them. You've got people here who are eyewitnesses and seeing the things that Jesus is doing, and yet they don't care to know how. They don't care to accept it. They don't care to see him for who he really is. Hearing and seeing do not bring them to faith. Why not? Why don't they believe Why aren't these things enough? Why can't they see Jesus for who he truly is? And I think it's because they know him. At least they think they know him. And that's question one. Do you desire to know the true Jesus? Do you desire to know the true Jesus? The questions in verse 3 are likewise insulting, insinuating. Is this not the carpenter, I mean a commoner, who works with his hands? Blue collar, right? The son of Mary, and, and this is, I don't know, this could possibly be a, a slight to a, a quote-unquote scandalous birth, right? Or it could be that at this point, Joseph is no longer around, has already passed. Right, but, but, but here, it's, isn't this the son of Mary? The Brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and aren't his sisters with us All right and what's crazy like you look at the, those names of his brothers those are names of, of patriarchal uh, of the patriarchs right I mean james is, is is the Jewish version of Jacob right joseph from joseph and then you've got you've got the other two that are, that, that are are, are um I mean, Judas known as Jude, right? The Greek form of Judah. These are, these are big names that are looking for a redeemer. These are big names of faith. The point is, though, is that they know him. They know him. They, they, they either grew up with, with him. Some of them may have changed his diaper, his diapers, cloth diaper as a baby, right? They, they know him. They knew him. They know his family. They know where he comes from. They know his background. They know his history, You ever met somebody who you grew up with and you can't believe who they are now? They talk about famous people always want to keep their friends from back home because they're the ones they know they can trust. But yet, oftentimes, it's those friends who just don't see them as as being famous. They can't see them in that way. They can't see them as anybody more than, than who they used to run the streets with. They simply do not accept Jesus. Their minds are already made up because they cannot get past their preconceived notions of who he is. Despite what they've seen, despite what they know to be true regarding what he's done, no evidence of miracles will change how they view him or his nature. And so what can we draw from this? Have you ever thought if I was just there, if I could see Jesus, it would be different? It'd be easier to believe. It'd be easier to accept. If Jesus was here right now, I would absolutely follow his way. Because it would be easier. I'd be able to see him. He'd be able to guide me. Well, what we can draw from this is is that's not necessarily true. That Jesus' teachings and miracles do not automatically produce faith. In fact, we read that they are actually offended. His teaching, his miracles his wisdom his words they offended those who knew him best and the word offended here is actually from scandalomai scandalizomai which is scandalous right they felt scandaled by what jesus was telling them his works they could not deny his words they could not handle his truth They could not see because you see, apart from seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith, you will never be able to see who Jesus truly is. So, question number two Do you choose social comfortability? Danny, you can just put comfort, that's fine. Social comfortability over gospel truth. Do you choose social comfortability over gospel truth? In our current society, it's more important than ever to accept Jesus for who he is. He is truth. He is wisdom. He is the son of God. He is Lord. He is our Lord. And that means we accept him for who he is and all of who he is and nothing less. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. And you see in in, in Jesus' response in verse four is, is very familiar, right? He said this during his last hometown visit. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his household. You ever stop to think why that is? Like truly? You ever spend so much time with someone you just can't imagine they do something wrong? Mom, can you imagine that I would murder Michelle? What if there was evidence that proved that I did. What if I came straight out and told you, "Yeah, Mom, I killed her." She still still won't believe it, because she knows me, she knows me fully, or at least thinks that she does, that I'm not capable of doing that. And it's a little bit on the opposite side here with Jesus right, but it's the same concept. They know him. They can't imagine that he could be the son of God, that he could be the Messiah. You ever spent so much time with, with someone, you stop, stop appreciating them? Imagine how many divorces we have, how many spouses you, you live with them for, for the rest of your life and then you just stop appreciating the things that they do. You stop appreciating the love that you get and give or right? you spend that much time with someone and it's hard to look past their everyday follies. Not that you have any. In Christians today, I think that we run into a... a, a, a struggle or at least a place where we need to be guarded and we need to be aware because if you're a Christian, then Christ should be a member of your family, right? He should be in your home. And if you grew up in church or if your children are growing up in a Christian home, it's very easy to just become comfortable with Jesus. It's very easy to no longer be amazed at his miracles. It's very easy to just be repetitive in your prayers. It's very easy to let it slide, that Bible study. Because you know Jesus, right? I mean, are you really going to learn more than what you already know? You, I mean, you know he's son of God. You know you're a sinner. You know that he went to the cross and died for your sins. You know he rose again. You know that if you believe in him you'll have everlasting life. That he's the bridge, the only way to heaven, the only way the Father is through the Son. You know all of these things. Right? What more do you need to know about Jesus? You ever read a passage twice? You ever read a passage 30 times? You ever got 40 different things out of reading something 30 times? That is the living word. That's the living word of God and that is the living Christ working in us. We will never know him enough his goal in this world and I hate this song I just do is not to be our friend that's not that's not Christ's goal it's not to be our friend his goal is is not to make the world comfortable his goal is to bring us to repentance Of faith and that we humbly fall at his feet confessing you are my Lord you are my Lord and God his relatives got it got it wrong at least at least for a while alright we know that that James and Jude and Mary like they all believed but it was after after he rose the religious leaders got it wrong rome got it wrong america got it wrong our society today gets it wrong do you get it wrong do you make jesus more palatable do you water down the truth do you water down jesus Because it's either easier for you to accept or it's easier for your neighbor to accept or it makes your job more secure. Do you water down the truth? Question three. Does gospel truth set the agenda for your life? Does gospel truth set the agenda for your life? Do we proclaim the whole truth of Christ, no matter what it may cost us? I'm telling you, I'm sitting here in in Las Vegas thinking about going through this sermon. I'm actually on a business call. Somebody tells me about the the guy who who our customer is going to be, his lifestyle and stuff. And I sit here and go, we're in Las Vegas, Pride Month, you know, special time in Vegas. And I'm sitting here going, what? What if he were to hear my sermon what if he were to hear me say something like that I believe homosexuality is wrong I do that's a bold claim it's a hard thing to stand up in front of people and say in this society if my job hears this sermon I could get fired if my customer who's going to spend millions of dollars with my company here's this he won't have me a part of it or may not go with our company at all those are the things that we're now conditioned to think about i wasn't even going to say this part do we let this our society do we let the fear of our acceptance rather than the fear of god control what we say what we do how we act how we think It feels like everywhere we turn today, feelings now dictate facts. Feelings become facts. Everyone is offended about something. Right? Everyone needs some kind of medication. Everyone has something wrong with them. Are you offended if the truth of Jesus is spoken? Are you offended if the truth of Jesus is not spoken? I think we'd all probably say yes. But are you offended if the whole truth, the real truth of Jesus is spoken? Are you offended when it's something you're not comfortable with? Can you accept that? Or do you deny it and do you say, that's not the characteristic, that's not the nature of the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know loves purely, wholly. He is love. You're not wrong. But that's not the only component to Christ. And is it easier, do we use love as a a means of hiding behind that to not have to, to focus with things that maybe are hard to swallow or things that we just don't necessarily agree with. you know, We'll proudly boast, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But if we're not accepting the gospel as truth, if we're not accepting the whole gospel as infallible truth, we are ashamed. We are ashamed of the gospel. Well, let me ask you. I'm going to read from, from Mark uh, um, chapter 8. And I'm not going to go into it because obviously, you know, Robert's going to get there and preach on it. But I'm going to read a, a couple passages. And, and I want you to see or think as I read this. Is this an accurate description of you? Okay. It's, it's chapter 8, verses 34 uh, through 38 And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of the Father with the holy angels? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and I think that we're all probably somewhat familiar with that passage, but really think about that. Does that describe you? If it doesn't, then at least you're being honest, because if I'm honest... I don't know if that fully describes me because I'm sitting there thinking about watering down a sermon for fear that someone may hear me say something. I expect that, that you know, when, when someone confronts me, I'll stand up for what I believe in and hope I do, right? But am I unashamed enough to love my neighbor Enough to offend them. Do you love people enough to offend them lovingly? But do you love them enough to offend them? If not, then we're loving them straight to hell. Thank God that Jesus loved us enough to offend us. We continue on Mark uh, verses uh, five and six. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went out among the, the villages teaching. He could do no mighty works there? Did I did I just read that, that Jesus has a kryptonite? Did I just read that he cannot actually do miracles? Jesus can't perform miracles if we don't believe. That sounds a little bit more like a guy in a red suit than it does a guy red in his own blood. How could the omnipotent Son of God be bound, limited by unbelief? I mean, we know He doesn't receive His power based on how much we believe, right? There's a a book on Mark that Tim Keller uh, wrote, and he writes this. He says, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. In other words, he could not do a miracle because he would not. He could not because he would not in the face of such unbelief. And even if he had, I think that we've seen that it wouldn't have changed their hearts anyway, it wouldn't have changed their minds anyway. But imagine coming to his hometown and what he would have wanted to do in his hometown. Imagine what he would do in your life in the presence of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, "Um, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Question number four. Is your faith limiting what Christ will do in your life? Is your faith limiting what Christ will do? Better put, is your lack of faith limiting what Christ will do in your life? Last week, Robert preached uh, on on some of what he would do. He'll heal your body. He'll restore life that you're no longer dead but alive. That applies to that little girl. It applies to our souls. But reject him, and he won't do the same for you as he does for others. Like the Nazarenes in verse 6, you know, you'll send him away. He'll go to others who listen. His message will be, who will listen to his message and embrace the truth, embrace him as Lord. We see here a part in, in, in verse 6 that Jesus marveled at the unbelief in his hometown. He was amazed to the point of astonishment at their unbelief. And only twice in the Bible um, do we read that Jesus marveled like this. We read it here in verse 6 because they couldn't get past their familiar fear, feel of Jesus. They're unwilling to accept Jesus on his terms. He's astounded at their unbelief in light of the truth that he spoke and the work that he did. And sadly, this foreshadows the unbelief of Israel as a nation, our nation, many of our churches. This contempt towards Jesus by the Nazarenes doesn't speak about who Jesus is. It speaks about who they are. What about you and I? Do we show contempt towards Jesus, towards the Jesus revealed in Scripture? Do we feel scandalized by the truth and the way of the gospel? Are we offended by the unfair message of the gospel? What do I mean by unfair message? Well, I mean a message that says that a child molester, that a murderer on death row, that a even a politician and a president, because of Christ's love, can be redeemed. Can spend eternity in heaven with the Father by having childlike faith. I mean, come on. That does not sound fair to me. I'm, I'm being honest. I'm. I'm this is not even a. Emphasis for preaching. That does not sound fair to me. You cannot live your whole life hurting people. And decide on your deathbed that you believe and get to heaven. That is not right. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable when you take children and you do things to them. You deserve the greatest punishment ever. My sins are no worse than that. Your sins are no worse than that. Because our sins still send us straight to hell. But that's the gospel truth. That's the gospel truth. Does it feel uncomfortable? Do you get upset when you hear a murderer on death row has accepted Christ? Do you get upset that when you go to heaven and you think about all the things that you've done and standing next to you is going to be, I don't know, Timothy McVeigh, Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't, who don't, I don't know. Like do, When you think about that, and that's not how it's going to be in heaven, don't get me wrong, I'm not, not trying to say that, but when you think about that, how do you feel? The other instance in, in, in Scripture where Jesus is amazed to the point of astonishment is found in, in Luke chapter 7. Uh, and this is verses 1 through 10. And um, I, think, I think I was going to tell the story, but I think that I will actually just read it. But... Uh, After he had finished all these things, saying, all, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came, Jesus, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And he was not far from the house. And the centurion sent friends saying to him. Lord do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you. But say the word. And let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this and do that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who heard, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus marveled at the faith of a man who thought, He is Christ. I have faith in what He can do. And I am so low. Don't come to me. I'm not even worthy to come to you. Just say the word from a distance. That's how much power you have. Say the word from a distance. I know that you can heal Him. We've read about how many people have seen Jesus' healing go up to touch Him because they just thought of that faith. That if they could just touch him, they would be healed. This takes it a step further. Lord, just say the word he's healed. Guess what? That is great news for us. Why is that great news for us? That's great news for us because that means our prayers can be answered. That means that Jesus can heal in our lives. That means that Jesus can raise our dead souls to life. Is your faith such that Jesus would marvel at it, like he did with the centurion? Or have we become so familiar, so comfortable with him, that his words no longer convict us? That his miracles no longer astonish? Or that his death on the cross no longer strikes emotion in you? Familiarity in itself isn't bad. In fact, familiarity with our Lord brings him closer. It makes it for a more intimate relationship. It allows that to to be had, but if we don't guard ourselves, it could blind us to the greatness of the glory of our Savior. Do we allow the biblical evidence of Christ, of what Christ can do, the evidence of of who Christ is, which continues to hold up against every attempt to disprove. Do we allow the evidence of who Christ is? Do we allow the words of truth he speaks? Do we allow these things to slay our biases, right, and reshape our preconceived notion of who Jesus is? Do we accept him for who he is? Do we trust the righteousness of his ways? Do we proclaim his truth when it's uncomfortable? Jesus was met without honor in his hometown, and we, we cannot make that same mistake in our hearts. We must not come to Jesus on our own terms, like the people in Nazareth. We must come to Jesus on his terms, in his truth, and that is only through faith that we're able to do that. They asked those questions early on, where does he get these things? How's he been given this, this wisdom? How does he do these mighty works with his hands? And, and I have scriptures that, that would point to all of those, uh, and they're actually marked here. But I'm not going to go through all of them. I am going to go through one. Because Jesus is wisdom, right? But what he says is, I've told you and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He goes on. This is in John chapter ten. He goes on and ends, uh, not ends, but in verse thirty says, "I and the and I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one." Where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Because he is God. He is Lord. He and the Father are one. He is the Son of God. And so, I'll end this morning with a similar question to the ones that I opened up with. And this is question five. Do you accept Christ for who He is or for who you want? Do you accept Christ for who he is or for who you want. Little footnote, only one of those is actual acceptance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, our, our lack of faith, I imagine, amazes you more than our in our faith. Jesus, you are truth. You are wisdom. You indeed are Lord. And by God's grace, that we are able to say that and proclaim you through faith. I ask that, Father, we go through this week that we truly reevaluate where our heart is, where we allow the gospel. Truth to guide our lives, to set the agenda for our lives, that we be bold. Father, I pray that you convict us to be bold, to be loving, to be truthful, and to not fear this world, to not fear our society, to not fear rejection. Father, I pray that we only fear you. I sit here amazed at just what Christ has done. And I thank you so much that that I get to be a part of that family. I get to be a part of the new heavens. It's in Christ's name that we pray.